Sometimes when you've worshipped the Lord, you feel like just folding your hands and praying and going home in the sweetness and the thoughts of Him. But we know that the Word of God is what the Lord has commanded us to preach and uh, we'll give our attention to it for the next little bit. I have to admit I wrestled a lot in the last couple of days with uh, whether uh, we should break away from our series and maybe do some special message on what God's perspective is on the kinds of events that surround us today. But I eventually came back to the conclusion that the most important thing for you and I or you and me, the most important thing for us as a church and as believers is simply to reaffirm our commitment to the exposition of God's Word as the means by which the Lord has given us to continue to progress in our faith and walk with Him. One of the greatest needs of our country and of people who are around us today is to see a people who are unmoved by the events that shake the world around us. One of the greatest needs is to see a people whose agenda is so radically disconnected from the daily headlines that for the world to encounter us ought to be like a blast of cold water in the face of their hypnotic stare into the dark hole of their despair as they watch their country around them. They ought to know when they encounter a church, when they hear a sermon, when they experience the life of the body of Christ. They ought to know that these are not people who gather on one side or another of an issue, but they gather around the throne of Christ and their agenda is the Savior. So to that end, uh, we this morning are going to direct our attention right back to where we were before Christmas, right back to the Sermon on the Mount. Probably one of the best passages we could think of anyway to focus our heart and mind as we look toward a new year, a new season, because we are looking at the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 15. And there are a few better topics that we could spend our time exploring in the topic of prayer. It is a discipline that we all should be recommitting ourselves to in this new year. And the point is accentuated even during times of uncertainty. We ought to be taking renewed interest in deepening and enriching our time of fellowship with God. The problem, of course, is that prayer, even when it is a focus of ours, can still be sometimes elusive. We may have times and seasons when it comes easy, but most of us, when we're honest, we have to admit that prayer is difficult. It's difficult to sustain. It's difficult to have a sense of of nearness to God, maybe. It's difficult to have an idea of whether we are praying in a way that's connecting with God, that is pleasing to God, that is making any kind of difference. Fervent and devoted prayer is a mystery that we seemingly spend our life trying to unravel, and yet at the same time, it's almost the undeniable air that we breathe. 
in order to survive, at least for those who walk with Christ. It is a place that is, for us, most familiar as a refuge and at the same time the most unfamiliar frontier in our life, our Christian life. Something that we inevitably make a part of our Christian life and yet something that is a struggle for most every Christian I know on a regular basis. Conceptually, we understand how important prayer is, but practically we have to admit that many, many times we feel lost trying to pursue faithful prayer. Well, part of this is why the Lord gave us the Lord's Prayer. He gave it as a response to His disciples in Luke 6, asking very specifically for the Lord to teach them how to pray. We know that it was to help them know how to develop a fervent and sustainable prayer life. That's one of the purposes of this. Of course, we know part of the reason as well was to confront all of the false notions that had been built up in the religion of Israel's day. People who had made prayer nothing more than a facade, something that would promote their their sort of personal agenda or their, um, their personal prominence. These guys had built a whole religion that basically revolved around self. It's all about self-promotion and self-glory. And they brought it into their prayer life and prayer became all about them. And so Jesus talked about these hypocrites who, he says, stood on the street corners to pray in order to be seen by other people. If they had social media accounts in those days, they would have posted it online so that everyone could see their time with the Lord that particular day. It was really all about them and it was all about uh, cultivating the image that somehow they were connected to God as much if not more than everyone else. When in fact, Jesus says that nothing about their prayer life connected them to God. In fact, he talks about the empty and meaningless words that they and others use. They would would heap up these phrases or string along these phrases that they might have heard or learned along the way, or in some cases may have been completely unintelligible phrases. It didn't matter, Jesus says, that when you heap together these meaningless phrases, when your mind is disengaged, you may be making noise but you have no connection with God and your prayer is useless. Everything around the disciples, in other words, that they were seeing in the Christian, or I should say the religious culture of their day, everything around them gave them nothing to cling on to in in terms of knowing what faithful prayer ought to look like. And so he gives a contrast. He sets a... He sets a model before them that can help them to know how they ought to pray. If you're not going to follow these hypocrites, if this isn't going to be what you try to mimic, then what should you do? And he outlines for us in verses 9 through 15 this very clear model of the kind of things that God is expecting, the kind of things that God is looking for, the kind of prayer life that we would say is effective in the way that God intends it to be. And we've been outlining a number of the elements that He gives to us here that shape our prayers. We 
have already looked at several before the Christmas season. The first being our relationship when he begins the prayer by addressing God as our Father in heaven. It's a reflection of this relationship we have with God. He as our heavenly Father and we as his adopted children. So that we begin these prayers or we begin prayer in general with a deep reflection on the closeness and the affection that God has for us, that He's demonstrated for us, and we know He's demonstrated supremely in the gift of the Savior Jesus Christ. That nearness, however, doesn't make God like us. It's not intended to over-familiarize Him with our nature and sort of our being because while we are addressing God as Father, Jesus also adds a second element of reverence. Hallowed be your name or holy is your name. So we begin with this sort of contemplation of God's love and affection for us and at the same time a contemplation of His distinct and holy character. We bring to God our burdens and our cares and our requests in light of the fact that He is a God of immense, in fact, infinite concern and care, of impeccable character, of unbending promises, of inexhaustible grace, and absolute power, to do whatever He needs to do on our behalf. This is one of the key elements of fervent and devoted prayer, as a matter of fact, that's lost on so many people, is simply the focusing in, or we might even say the rehearsing of God's great character, and then rejoicing in the fact that this great transcendent God is the one who has invited us to approach Him. And then thirdly, Jesus highlights that with all of this in mind, we also are shaped in our prayers by hope. Your kingdom come. So you're you're consumed with His kingdom. So much more than the kingdoms that are in this world, so much more of the kingdoms that the world pursues, you're consumed with the glory of Christ and the glory of His kingdom and the thoughts of His coming righteousness and His reign of His truth. And you're swept up in hope and anticipation of that and you cannot be torn away from it. As a matter of fact, the more you contemplate the imperfections of the world around you, the more it drives you to the perfections of what He's promised. The more you look at the weakness and confusion and oppression and disappointment and injustice and everything that's around you, the more you are driven not to hope in those kingdoms and somehow a reformation of those kingdoms, the more you are drawn to hope in the kingdom of Christ. And it only makes sense that if you're truly praying with God's hallowed name in your mind, it only makes sense then that you would want to reflect on that name and that character being on full display when Christ returns. So it's a natural extension that you would pray your kingdom come. Fourthly, we 
took time to consider then also submission. How we reflect on not only this coming kingdom, but we reflect on God's perfect will in the second half of verse 10. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Again, if we're elevating God's name and elevating God's character and thinking about His perfections the way we ought to be, then it only makes sense that we would want to yield to whatever He determines to be necessary, to be, to be uh, we might say, fitting or to be uh, a part of His overall plan, His will, His sovereignty. We yield to His wisdom no matter what is going on around us. You recognize that God's will expressed first and foremost, obviously, in His commandments, but also in His control over circumstances. All of it accomplishes what is, according to His great wisdom, most excellent most worthy of praise, most beneficial to His ultimate glory and to those who are His people. And so you pray with that kind of yielding to Him, that kind of love for Him. All of this grows out of this yearning for God's glory and God's honor. And that emphasis is inescapable as you read the prayer. It's a prayer that places its primary concern on the name and the glory and the will and the honor of God. We often think about prayers asking God for certain things. When Jesus instructs us here on prayer, though, we recognize that it's not just asking God for things that we want. But prayer is really taken up first and foremost with affirming God and delighting in God and extolling Him and extolling His ways and His character. Its primary request, its beginning requests are for His kingdom and His will. As I mentioned to you last time, the fuel that fires fervency in prayer is this kind of focus on the glory of God and on His name which is why Jesus begins the prayer right here. Now that's not to say that your burdens and your requests and your cares have no place in prayer. They're just framed up, if you will, within the landscape of a yearning for God's glory. They're framed up having laid the foundation of why this whole thing is happening the way it's happening. They're framed up on why everything needs to happen. It all needs to happen, however it happens, for the glory of God and for the praise of His majesty. So when you do eventually get to personal requests, personal yearnings, burdens, cares, they are necessarily calibrated, regulated, shaped by your focus on the glory of God. Now, this is where Jesus turns our attention in verse 11 as he gives us now further insight into the elements that God expects in these prayers, the things that shape our prayers. And particularly in verse 11, he turns to the issue of 
personal requests. This is not, as I said, what's primary, but they have their place. And much of the rest of Matthew 6 and even in the beginning of Matthew 7 becomes a a discussion, really, of these kinds of burdens. Jesus will go on to talk about the cares and anxieties that we face. He'll give a lot of attention to the kind of questions that plague your heart and mind day in and day out about things such as what will we eat or what will we drink or with what shall we be clothed. And all of this, all of this recognizing that in the real world we live in, we do have cares and burdens. But those cares and burdens, as I said, are framed up properly only in light of the primary concern for God's glory. They're, they're understood, they ought to be understood, if they're to be properly understood, then they're to be understood against the backdrop of the benefit, of the delight, of the satisfaction of God and God alone. With that, Jesus gives us this fifth element that shapes our prayer, which we could call dependence. Dependence. Give us this day our daily bread. People have uh, been struck from the very beginning of the church. They've been struck by how incredibly simple this prayer is. From the earliest days, church fathers commented on how basic it is. Focused on one of the most basic needs that you could have. Bread. The simplest staple in a diet for most people throughout all the world and for all time. In fact, it was so simple, it was so basic, it's, it's difficult and has always been difficult to imagine most people offering a prayer like this each day. As a matter of fact, Jesus coins a word here that's a very unique word, the word daily. The, the word in the original Greek is not found anywhere in any Greek literature except for those places that refer back to this prayer. So nothing before the New Testament, nothing contemporaneous with the New Testament, and only in those documents that were after the New Testament as they referred back to this prayer. It's the only place you'll ever find this word. Modern commentators have wrestled with its exact meaning and uh, many and maybe most have come to believe that it's some sort of some sort of slang word or some sort of shortened phrase or shortening of a phrase that basically means for the present day which is now so this one little word kind of sort of summarizes or encapsulates that phrase for the present day which is now the Greek word itself is actually based on a very simple word, usia, which is the word for existence. So the idea appears to be in its most basic form that this is the bread which is most necessary for our basic existence. In other words, this is, this is a prayer for the most basic of needs that you could imagine. 
the most basic staple that you could conceive of. And throughout time, except for maybe days of famine, this has been considered so basic as to be almost incidental for most people on most occasions. Except for those who might be on the edge of starvation, people generally have some sort of storehouse, some sort of security, if you will. In the ancient world, they would have had, they would have had bags of grain that they would have stored away in some corner of their property or some place in their house. In the modern world, we have, of course, our bank accounts, our modern days of, uh, our modern uh, conveniences, I should say, of refrigeration. But even in days before that, even before bank accounts and refrigerators and all that, even ancient commentators recognize that most people do not live on this kind of a ragged edge from a day-to-day basis. Most people are not waking up on a regular basis wondering how they're going to eat come lunchtime or even breakfast. All of this makes Jesus' prayer here so much more striking. I mean, it begs the question, does He really expect us to live on such a razor-thin margin? Is this prayer really intended for everyone Or is it only directed for those who are in the most impoverished societies? And what does it mean for us in in a modern world when we we do have so many securities, when we do have so many conveniences, when we do have so much sort of uh, 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 put away, if you will? How does this apply to us when we have a stable job, when we have a, 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 a savings account, when we have a retirement account? when we have a pension or whatever it might be? Are we really supposed to be asking God with some sort of uh, skepticism or doubt, are we really supposed to be asking God to provide our breakfast? Especially when we know that right around the corner we have eggs and bacon in the refrigerator. How can we ask God for our bread when we know it's already in the pantry? And if you did not wake up this morning pleading with God to give you something to eat for lunch, were you sinful? Those kinds of questions really drive home the key point of this sermon or the key point of this model prayer, I should say. Jesus makes this prayer so incredibly basic as to be almost beyond doubt. In most cases, it would be beyond doubt. In most cases, and for most people, it really wouldn't even be a question whether or not this particular day you're going to have bread by the time you get to the dinner table at breakfast. But by focusing on these needs or this need at such a basic, basic form, such a daily form, it almost forces you to acknowledge, to realize that God already has provided for you. 
that the answer is already in store. You remember back in verse 8, part of Jesus' whole introduction to this prayer was to remind you, your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. He already knows even before you make the request. And now Jesus is showing us what it looks like in the context of prayer when you know and believe that. A recognition that God already knows your need and a recognition that He's already met the need. We have been provided for by God for our daily bread. Makes me think of one of my favorite passages. And if you have your Bible, you can look with me over at Daniel chapter 10. One of my favorite passages in all of Scripture on prayer. Daniel chapter 10, verse 2. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. Three weeks. Three weeks of broken and tearful and no doubt anxious prayer. I was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for three full weeks. And on the 24th day, so I guess that's, what, three weeks plus a couple of days. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like, was like the sound of the multitude. So this is an angelic, powerful being. Now look down with me down at verse 10. As the angel who appears for Daniel begins to answer, Behold... A hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees and said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humble yourself before, you, before your God, your words have been heard and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief priests, came to help me for I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what it is, what is to happen to your people in the latter days now we won't get sidetracked with with the inner workings of angelic beings in their in their battles and disputes but the point we want to focus on is this that daniel was on his face before the lord 
weeping and praying for 21 days and seeing no action, no visible sign of God doing anything. And yet while he wasn't seeing any visible sign of God doing anything, it didn't mean that God was doing nothing. As a matter of fact, the angel says, from the very first day, from the moment you lifted up your prayer to God 21 days ago, I was dispatched on a mission and began to work out whatever it is I'm working out in order to fulfill what God's designed for this. Now, this is a picture of prayer for us. To realize that before we ever even see the answer to our prayers, that it is in the works, we might say. Or another way to say that is that the answers are already there. They're already there before we ever see them come to fruition. Or if we understand what Jesus teaches us about God in prayer, when he already knows before we even ask him to understand that God has already ordained for the answer of what you're asking him. So it's not a, it's not a, a stretch then, or let me say it this way, Jesus emphasizes this by putting it into the most extreme situation, which is the most basic kind of staple food that you might have at hand in your pantry. You're still supposed to recognize that it is God who is the one that you are trusting for that particular staple. Now, it might strike you as nothing too profound to realize the fact that you already have it in your pantry as some great evidence of God's power and might and majesty. But that's not because God is not powerful or mighty or majestic. It's just simply because you have failed to recognize the working and the hand of God, which in that particular situation with your daily bread, God has already provided the answer to your prayer. And it's no less glorious of Him, and it's no less majestic of Him, it's no less good of Him, the fact that you can visibly see it than it was for Daniel when he couldn't see it for three weeks or for another brother or sister when they can't see it for six months or when they can't see it for a year. To know that when you are asking God for this kind of provision, when you're asking God to meet those needs, whatever they might be, some of those needs might be very evidently before you and some of those things might be very much outside of your view, but none of it has any impact whatsoever on God's faithfulness, on God's goodness, on God's power or his intent to do what is necessary to give you everything you need in order to serve him. This is a prayer, in other words, of the acknowledgement of the power and the goodness of God from the simplest of things in your life. In some ways, it's the antidote of presumption. This is the kind of prayer that mitigates against forgetfulness, even in the times of greatest blessing, when we recognize that the very money in our bank account and the very bread in our pantry 
is the result of God already knowing our need, anticipating our need, and meeting our needs on a regular basis. The psalmist says in Psalm 145, The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due time. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. He says that a little bit earlier in that same psalm, Psalm 145, The Lord is good to all, and His mercy is over all His works. So this is just simply a recognition of God's goodness at work all the time in your life in those things which are common and those things which are still mysterious. In fact, Jesus will expand on this down later in Matthew chapter 6 in what some people think might actually be a contradiction. That Jesus might actually be saying something the opposite when he says down in verse 31, do not be anxious, saying what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? So in one place, He's telling us to ask God for daily bread. In another place, he's telling us that we shouldn't be asking, what shall we eat? How do you reconcile those two things? Well, the answer is right there in verse 32, the very next verse. For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. You're not anxious, in other words, about these things. You're not anxious about them because you know that God knows your need. You ask for your daily bread, not because you're doubtful that you will have it. Not because you're doubtful that it's still in your pantry. You ask for it because you recognize that it is God who gives it daily, if necessary. God, give us our bread. Give us our home. Give us our clothing to warm us. Give us love within our bonds of family. Give us our needs as they arise. Give us what you have so graciously promised over and over again. This is a prayer of acknowledgement, a prayer of recognition, a prayer acknowledging back as Jesus says in Matthew five, forty-five at the end of the chapter right preceding. It's acknowledgement that He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good and His reign falls down on the righteous and the unrighteous. It's a prayer acknowledging the grace of God that is poured out in our lives every day in some of the most mundane ways such as rain and bread and sunshine and such. And it's actually the conviction that God provides. It's the conviction and the certainty that God is the one who is giving these things on a daily basis. It's actually that conviction which then opens up, if you will, the inner chambers of prayer. It opens up the inner chambers of real request. It opens up our hearts and minds to begin thinking about, wondering about, even asking for those things which really ought to be a much greater priority than our bread. Back in 
chapter, back in verse 31 of chapter 6 here, we're not to be anxious asking what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear. Instead, down in verse 33, we are to seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. So our prayers are not taken up with these sort of material daily concerns so much as they are just acknowledging God's goodness and giving them and then turning our real focus to those things which are eternal, which are spiritual. A prayer that rests confidently in God being able to take care of those daily needs frees your mind not only from anxiety, it frees your mind to focus on those other priorities. And so we're praying and we're asking God for daily bread, not because we doubt, not because we fear, not because we're gripped with anxiety that it may not be there, but actually because we're confident that it's there. We're confident that God has given it and He will give it and it all comes from Him. In fact, a number of commentators have noted through the years with some level of surprise that this model prayer, this, this Lord's prayer that He gives to us, has no element of thanksgiving in it. Nowhere does Jesus actually ever give a, uh, an example or a command for us to pray a prayer of thanksgiving. But I, I think part of that is because it's embedded in this whole idea of God giving our daily bread. It's not so much a prayer of hope as much as it is a prayer of acknowledgement of who our provider is. Recognition that while we might have all kinds of aspirations and we might have all kinds of goals in our mind, that to even begin to think for a moment that God is not rich and abundant in how He hears and gives and answers is really a disgrace to Him. We get so focused on what those personal desires are, which James says in many ways we ask and receive not because we ask in order to consume from our own lusts. We get so focused on what we perceive to be God not hearing a particular prayer when in fact if we were praying as God so ordained, we'd be recognized God's answering prayer all the time. Now, He's hearing, He's providing, He's showing His goodness to us all the time. And as believers, we ought to be marked by that kind of recognition. We ought to be marked by what the Scripture calls this kind of thankfulness. Paul, in fact, in Romans chapter 1, says one of the most basic characteristics of unbelief is a lack of this kind of gratitude. Romans 1.20, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, His eternal power and His divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through that which is made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. So one of the dominant characteristics of unbelievers is not only a denial of God, it's a refusal to thank Him on a daily basis for all of the common grace that He pours out in their life. On the other hand, you and I ought to be marked by thankfulness. We ought to be marked by thankfulness. 
It ought to be one of the things that we use to guard our hearts on a regular basis. And look with me for a moment. I think you'll understand this better if you read it from the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 4 where he speaks about this kind of gratitude in prayer with incredible insight. 1 Timothy chapter 4. The apostle begins that chapter by telling us that the Spirit explicitly says in the latter times some will fall away from the faith. And then he begins to give some of the examples of what this will look like in verse 3. He says these will be men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods, which, he says, God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth for everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with gratitude for it's sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer so he talks about this food that you receive and really everything else but but here his focus is on these people who are trying to Uh, impose dietary restrictions for their own sort of ascetic, religious, uh, 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 hypocritical ideals. But Paul says that that flies in the face of the grander theology of God's goodness and grace, where he has given us food. And he says this food is sanctified, first of all, by the Word of God, meaning that in the beginning, Genesis 1.29 The Lord says, I've given you every plant yielding seed on the surface of the earth and every tree has its fruit yielding seed and it shall be food for you. In other words, the Lord declared that all of this stuff that's grown in all these places, he created it for you for food with almost unlimited variety. I'm not a chef. I've often wished I had the time to spend you know some time learning how to cook because i'm just amazed at the combinations of things that people can put together it fascinates me almost as a work of art uh, how people can mix all of these flavors and these foods together to create all of these things but even that in itself is a reflection of the goodness of god that we have if you will all of those things on the palate to use, to mix together, to make all of these wondrous things. And in Genesis 9, 3, God goes on to tell Noah, every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. And I give it to you as I gave the green plant. So now animals are included by the Lord in all of this given food. And so we have all of this stuff that has been sanctified. It's been set apart by God for food. But Paul says it's also sanctified by prayer. It's also sanctified by prayer. You say, well, how's that? Well, part of it is what Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, 3, just at the very beginning of this, God's created these things to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. So we sanctify it when we receive it Thankfully, gratefully. See, without that prayer of gratitude, your food or whatever it is, your clothing, your basic needs every day, 
that all those things that you receive from God, they're unsanctified. They are, you might say it this way, they're unholy or maybe even defiling. Because the very blessings that God gives and He's pouring out into your life can actually turn into curses when you're receiving them without the acknowledgement of God as the giver of them. In fact, they can become an idol. They can become a distraction. It's one of the great tragedies of creation that those who actually have the most abundance, the most to be grateful for, are often the worst at acknowledging it. They're the least thankful. They're the most distracted. They're the most forgetful about God. Their time ought to be consumed with thankfulness. These things actually become defiling. So we sanctify them. God sanctified them by giving them to us. We sanctify them by receiving, receiving them with thankful prayer. I think this is really what Jesus is embedding here for us. He's embedding that necessary sanctification process so that the things that you take for granted today ought to be sanctified every day. The fact that you get to enjoy a meal The fact that you get to enjoy your home. The fact that you get to enjoy your spouse and your children and your parents. You just take all that stuff for granted without recognizing that those are daily gifts from the Lord. Thanking Him. Acknowledging that He's the one that has given you that blessing. This is prayer then that guards against that kind of presumption just as it guards against the anxiety As I said, people think down in verse 31 of Matthew 5 that Jesus is saying we shouldn't be anxious. We shouldn't be asking for these things. No, in fact, prayer is the antidote to anxiety. Asking is not the problem. The problem is asking anything other or anyone other than God to be the provider for all of those things. So we ask, we recognize that it is not your hands, it's not your labor, it's not your efforts, it's not your ingenuity, it's not your employer, it's not whatever you have framed up in your mind, it's not any of those things that provide for you your basic daily needs. It's the Lord. And the fact that He has already answered. And the fact that it's already visible. Should in no way detract from you standing in worshipful awe of God. For His goodness in your life. You ought to have the same confidence for those things that you can't see yet. Those answers that are not yet visible. Understanding that God's promises are yes. That God's goodness is unbending, as I said earlier. That He does encourage you to place your trust in Him. And ultimately, knowing that He will answer. Well, there's more here that shapes our prayers 
that the Lord has laid out for us two more elements, as a matter of fact, that we'll get to, Lord willing, next week. Let's stand together as we're dismissed with the word of God, with the word of uh, prayer and a song. Father, we're grateful for this reminder, thankful that the word does sanctify and prayer does sanctify. How quick we are to acknowledge that the blessings you pour out in our life are the very things which often draw our attention away from you. We would not have it so. Lord, let every blessing that comes into our life, no matter how menial or no matter how great, let every one of them be received as the answer to our prayers and the gift from your grace. Lord, we pray that you would make us a people who are prayerful, a people who are quick in prayer to acknowledge you, who humbly stand day after day with the recognition of our dependence. Lord, as you do that in us, you will make us a content, a joyous, a grateful, and a stable people, a people who look to your hand and are satisfied day after day by your goodness. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.